Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Sports Virus Podcast, everybody. I'm Joe Castellano. Today's guest is a former longtime sports TV radio columnist with the Los Angeles Times, Larry Stewart. I got to know him when I spent some time in L.A., and he wrote about all of the big broadcasting names, uh, whether it be local broadcasters like Chick Hearn and Bob Miller with the Lakers and the Kings, or national and local broadcasters like Vin Scully and uh, Al Michaels, Dick Enberg. Uh, He has rubbed elbows with all of the big-time announcers, and he had plenty of stories to tell in his new book that just came out. Here's a conversation that I had with Larry Stewart on Friday. Well, Larry, I really enjoyed your book, My Up Close View, and uh, it was something that I was hoping that you would do because, uh, you know, I was one of those readers for a long time when I lived in Los Angeles, uh, and I always enjoyed your column, and and you did it, it seemed, forever, Uh, so it was wonderful to see all the stories that you wrote. Thanks a lot for joining me here on the podcast. Hey, Joe, it's great to reconnect with you, so uh, anyway, looking forward to this chat. Yeah, I mean, the book starts out with a foreword by Jim Nance, which was wonderfully written. And you go ahead and tell a lot of stories about all these different announcers that you were around in your career. Uh, what kind of a thrill was it? Did you did you have to pinch yourself at times with uh, you know some of the celebrity sportscasters that you were around when you were writing the TV radio, radio column? Yeah, I think the, the phrase, pinch, a pinch me moment, I had many of those in my career, and I explained early in the book that, uh, you know, what was great about covering uh, broadcasting is I got to deal with all sports. You know, I wasn't just covering baseball or basketball or football. That uh, It was a great beat, and uh, um, the majority of people I dealt with that in broadcasting uh, are good guys, and they knew the importance of good press uh, because they don't have one loss records or statistics to go to uh, to go to meetings with their agent to do a new deal. Uh, they got their press clippings and just general public reaction to their work. Um, that's that's what they what broadcasters have to use. So uh, press uh, good press to broadcasters is very important. I think. At least it was. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of the announcers, they never forget what is written about them. In fact, uh, one of your many stories in the book talks about Bob Costas not forgetting what you wrote about him and, and him, you know, sort of pointing out in very, uh, you know, <laughs> close detail what you had written, whether it be positive or negative. So, I mean, were you surprised sometimes at how much some of these big time announcers would pay attention to that? Well, the incident you're talking about was it did blow me away bob who i knew fairly well and uh you know never uh, i wrote positive and negative things about him like i did a lot of the broadcasters i wrote about but he called i think it was early you know around 2000 early 2000s or something and uh larry i'm going to be in town could we meet for dinner i'm staying at the beverly wilshire and i said sure and uh uh, the first uh, hint that I guess maybe this wasn't going to be <laughs> just, uh, hey, how are you type dinner was, <laughs> he said, meet me in the coffee shop. So 
he was there when I walked into the coffee shop, and uh, it just blew me away. He remembered stuff I couldn't remember, and I have a pretty good memory, as the book attests. Uh, he could recite everything negative thing I'd ever written about him. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there kind of blown away, and I said, but I wrote some nice things about you, too. And then he recited those, and I just, it, it, it was amazing, and he told me, I, I don't want you to think I'm obsessed, uh, although I did think that, <laughs> but I just have a photographic memory. And he is a very, very smart guy. I, I didn't ask him his IQ, but I'm sure it's high. And uh, uh, so anyway, it, we, we, it wasn't like an angry discussion. He kind of said, did I have something personally against him? And, you know, I assured him, no, I just, you know, write with. I think sometimes, and um, so yeah, that was that was a pretty uh, uh, memorable exchange. And then years later, it was around 2016. My wife were at a charity function, and and I reconnected with him, and he starts asking about our younger daughter and all these details. And her name is Jill, and so my wife said, "How did Bob Costas know so much?" about Jill, and I said, photographic memory. <laughs> he really did. Our does have a photographic memory. And, you know, yeah, all these announcers are so special, but I think Bob Costas is not the only one who is sensitive. Uh, you know, you look at Al Michaels. There's another guy who's a legendary announcer, but he's sensitive to criticism as well. Yeah, I've, I've said this a number of times. Probably the most sensitive announcers I dealt with uh, were Al Michaels and Bob Costas and Ben Scully. And uh, I didn't think it's any coincidence that they are probably maybe the three best in that business during the era that I uh, I covered sports TV, which covers about 35 years. Yeah, and with Vin, uh, it was kind of a you know double duty there because you're covering somebody who is a national announcer or was and was the Dodgers announcer, of course, forever. Tell us about the special relationship that you had with Scully. Yeah, for the most part, it was good, but we had a, a blip in our relationship, as I write in, uh, I think it's around Chapter 3, uh, maybe, uh, I don't have the book in front of me, but uh, it was 1983 when he switched from CBS, where he did golf and football, uh, and then he went to do baseball with Joe Gargiola at NBC, and at a press function, uh that included journalists, not just sports journalists, but journalists that covered television. Uh, it was a press conference at the uh, Century Plaza in Los Angeles, and one of the television reporters asked him, you know, how he liked working with the commentator, and Ben said all the right things and how great it was, and I don't know if that reporter knew that that was a good question because Ben always preferred working alone. That's how he was taught by his mentor, Red Barber, that you talk to the audience. You don't talk to the guy sitting next to you. So uh, he said all the right things and how great it was working with Joe. And so the next night I went out to Dodger Stadium to ask him more about it. And uh, he, I thought he explained it pretty well. He said that uh, he sees uh, a need to have a commentator on a network broadcast when you're talking to a vast audience that doesn't have the same background that 
your audience that uh, listens to you every day. And but he said he thought the Dodgers had a winning formula, and he liked working alone. And so I wrote a column about it, and the headline said Scully still prefers working alone. <laughs> well, there wasn't room for a headline to say Scully still prefers working alone on Dodger broadcast. So you need to work with commentator on network. And he didn't like the headline. And so Steve Brenner was then the Dodger PR guy. And I, our Dodger beat writer at the Times said, Vin's really upset with your column. And I, he'd never been upset. I'd never, he'd never, well, he, there was no reason for him to be upset because I'd only written nice things about him. So I called him at the Dodger Hotel. They were in San Diego for the Padres. And I saw another side of him. He just gave me both barrels. And uh, <laughs> I write in the book, it, I mean, I couldn't sleep for a few nights. I mean, here this icon was really upset with me uh, for a few nights. <laughs> it was like breaking up with a girlfriend or something like that, you know. And uh, But at the end of the season, he sent me uh, a really nice note. He wasn't so mad, and he explained he was really upset about what Jack Craig wrote in the Boston Globe. Well, Boston writers are always going to attack anything that has a connection to L.A. And uh, what Jack Craig had written was that there wasn't there wasn't enough room in the in a booth in a broadcast booth for the egos of Garagiola and Scully. And uh, so, but after that, our relationship returned to what it was. But when in that initial conversation, he had what stuck out. He says, Larry. I've always returned your phone calls. I've always talked to you when you come out to the ballpark or I see you someplace else. You and I have had our last conversation. So that was that was pretty jolting. But yeah. uh, our relationship went back to what it was. And uh, uh, he just, he's read my book and he sent me the most awesome letter you could, you could imagine. So uh, just, he said, you know, that it was brought back a lot of great memories and it's a bestseller and all this. I, 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 uh, I was, I was blown away by the letter <laughs> as much yeah. as I was when he got upset with me. But, uh, you know, the LA times recently, oh, within the last year had a poll who's the, uh, the biggest icon in the history of LA sports and Scully was a landslide winner. So, uh, pretty big name there, particularly in Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for any other announcers to even live up to that standard, right? I mean, as you are writing about Vince Scully and then you're writing about other announcers, I would think that's kind of challenging because, I mean, you could pick at uh, some things that you could never do with Scully because, you know, he's he's just definitely one of the best, if not the best, baseball announcers ever. Yeah, one of... Uh... The assistant sports editors at the Times had come from Chicago, and he was a Jack Brickhouse guy and and anti-L.A., anti-Dodgers, anti-Scully. And I told him about the phone conversation, and he said, write it. And I thought, you know, do I want to take on this L.A. icon <laughs> in, a, in my column and uh, point out, uh, you know, nobody's perfect, and we all have our moments of maybe... Uh, getting more upset than we should have, and uh, I just chose to just let it go. And uh, it could have been career suicide trying to take on uh, uh, Vince Scully. A counterpart of mine at the L.A. Daily News decided to take on Chick Hearn, 
and uh, make a name for himself. And uh, when you're dealing with uh, a broadcasting icon and you're trying to draw attention to yourself by uh, criticizing every little thing that they do, uh, I don't think that wins you any readers. No. And that was a special time that you had there when you have Scully and Chick Hearn and Bob Miller, the L.A. Kings announcer, all uh, broadcasting at the same time, and you get to know these guys. I, I wonder, you know, how much of a challenge is it to be objective? Uh, you know, when you you like those guys, or there might be other announcers that you don't like, but yet you still have to write good things about them if they're uh, doing a good job. Yeah, I write in the book how tough that is because I think there was times I I criticized people that I liked personally and uh, praised people that maybe I didn't really care for, uh, but. You try to be objective, uh, but it, as far as I'm concerned, that's impossible. I mean, uh, some journalists, uh, you know, wear their objectivity like a badge of honor, and uh, uh, that, that means they're always critical. Well, they're not being objective because they're looking to always be critical and draw attention to themselves. So uh, being totally objective, in my opinion, as a journalist or a broadcaster or or anybody in the media, uh, it's it, it, it's really impossible to be 100% objective. There's just no way it can be done. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be pretty tough. Uh, and when an announcer gets later on in years, I mean, like with Scully, and then, you know, even with Chick Hearn, and it comes time to talk about retirement, how much more difficult is that for you, or was it, when you were writing that column, uh, because, you know, th- at some point, an announcer has to hang them up, so to speak. And, uh, you know, m- many announcers just don't want to even get to that point. Yeah, it's a, it's a question, but I don't think anybody ever objected to the question. Uh, an interesting story. One time I was uh, talking to Keith Jackson. You know, he retired and then he came back. And they, he retired, uh, I can't remember the exact years, but... You know, he he retired, and then he came back six months later, but his first retirement, ABC, gave him this huge, big uh, send-off. Well, before he retired the first time, I'm interviewing him, and I asked him about retiring, and he said, well, uh, uh, look at uh, uh, Vin Scully. Uh, He's just going to go on forever, and they're going to have to shoot Chick Hearn. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I would say then a couple of years later, after Chick had passed in 2002 uh, at the Pasadena Quarterbacks Club, I was involved somewhat, and they wanted me to have Marge Hearn, uh, Chick's widow, and Keith Jackson come to one of their lunches. And uh, the guy that, that I was working with says, you know, tell them we'll, we'll have a car service pick up each one of them. And I explained, you, you only need one car. I said, I don't know if they know it, but they live about two or three miles apart, one on one side of the 405 and uh, Chick on one side in, in southeastern south Encino and uh, Keith Jackson on the other side of the freeway uh, in Sherman Oaks. And so they they both came in one car, and Marge was the first to speak. And I was sitting in the in the audience, fairly up close, and she pointed at me and said, uh, uh, you know, Keith, then she, well, first she directed her attention to Keith. She says, 
Keith, you know, we didn't know that you're a neighbor. We've never, I've never met you before the right over in the, in the car today. But your name used to come up a lot around our house. And then she pointed at, at me and she said, Larry, you once wrote that uh, Vince Scully was going to go on forever and they're just going to have to shoot Chick Hearn. So whenever <laughs> I'd get upset with Chick, I'd just tell him, Keith Jackson's right. I'm going to have to shoot you. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, Mar- I think Chick got a lot of his wit from Marge. She, she was a character. She was really, really witty. <laughs> You uh, you talk in the book about developing sources, uh, so when these big stories break, you're on top of it. And, you know, I'm thinking about here we are currently with Troy Aikman uh, moving on from Fox, and you know that's a big story right now. So when you have to establish those relationships, tell us about how you went about that. Well, first of all, you just have to get to know people on uh, you know a personal basis. Uh, to where they know you, uh, maybe they trust you, they like you, you've maybe had a beer with them or maybe a round of golf uh, or just phone conversations. And I spent a lot of time on the phone just talking to people and letting them get to know me and me get to know them. And uh, uh, I think that's so important. You just can't wait to get, uh, a press release and use the quotes from a press release or something. You just have to establish relationships on a personal basis, and there's many ways to do that. I'm almost like a salesman, you know. I want somebody to feel comfortable. Uh, so I remember when Dick Vermeil uh, came back from broadcasting to coach the uh, St. Louis Rams in '99. Uh, I think our NFL writer was, or you know, somebody at the time was trying to get a hold of Dick Vermeil, and one of my editors comes over and said, "Hey, do you know Dick Vermeil very well?" And uh, you know, I wouldn't say he was one of my guys that I knew really well, but I interviewed him and talked to him as a broadcaster. He spent 14 years in broadcasting, so I did have his home number, and I called and left a message, and he called back, and he said. Larry, he says, I've had over 100 messages from all these football writers. I don't know their name. He says, you were the only name that I recognize, so I'm calling you back. So uh, there again, just uh, like I say, it's just establishing a good relationship. Like when you, I don't remember exactly how we met. Maybe you called and introduced yourself or wrote to me and well you call back and you know talk and get to know someone and uh no offense to you but at that time you weren't one of the big nationally known announcers no. you were just starting out <laughs> but uh hey you know I'm going to call you back establish a relationship and maybe some think I wasn't thinking this but maybe you know someday I'd write a book and we would do a podcast together in the year <laughs> 2022. You know, you just never know. Yeah. So it, it it doesn't, it's so easy to do. In the book, I write about one of my best friends. It was like a second father was Bill Sharman, the legendary Boston Celtic player and Laker coach and Laker general manager and Laker president. And 
uh, he was just one of the nicest people I ever knew. Just, just really, and he, he made a point. It's a lot easier to be nice to people than it is to be rude to people, <laughs> and it, it really is, you know. And I'm not saying I'm nice and perfect all the time. I'm certainly I've irritated people or said the wrong thing or rubbed somebody the wrong way, but it's just, uh, you know, you, you, you talk to people, try and be nice, return their phone calls, return their emails. It's not that hard to do. Yeah, no, it isn't. Uh, and by the way, we did meet, it was, I'm going to say it was 27 years ago. Uh, and it was, we've come full circle because it was a baseball lockout that was going on. And I was doing play by play in a ball in the California league with the Rancho Cucamonga quakes. And we met because there was no major league baseball. And I was telling you, Hey, people should, people should listen to my broadcast on, on the, the quakes. And, and you kind of, you know, I think chuckled about that. Uh, but it was true. I mean, the, the, you know, we just didn't have major league baseball for a little while, which we may not have again here. That you, you've refreshed my memory. After I wrote that, I knew some people that started. I live in Arcadia, which what, which is what maybe fifty miles from. No, Arcadia is maybe twenty-five miles from Rancho Cucamonga, thirty miles, something like that. And people that I knew says, "Hey, we read your column. We went out to a Quakes game. It was great. Sat <laughs> <laughs> in the fourth row, and uh, you know, had a great time." <laughs> So you did some good PR there. <laughs> there you, know, you go. Which was good on your part. So you called me. Was that the way it, I think, it came I think that's the way that came about. And I, I remember the, the thing that struck me, and even reading the book, is how down-to-earth you are, Larry. And that's, you know, part of it's from your upbringing growing up in Central California. Do you think that helped you along the way because, uh, you know, you, you have a, a unique perspective because a lot of the big city writers, you know, they may, may have grown up in the big city where you didn't. Yeah, I think uh, humility is a great trait. And when you come from a background like mine and growing up in a very poor area and, you know, struggling a little bit and having to do farm work since I wrote in the book, the first job I remember, I was like five years old. We called it hoeing furrows. You know, I could, I had to uh, connect the, the, the furrow that was already there made by a, a plow to a weir that the water, you know, is about three feet. And, uh, you know, I had to hoe a, a, a furrow. <laughs> we call it hoeing a furrow. But at five years old or, or six or whatever I was, I uh, I could do it. And so, you know, my, I had a father that just expected his two boys to to work, you know, and help with the farm and do whatever we could. So I think uh, coming from a humble background, uh, and having to do to work uh, all the time, <laughs> you know. And when we got caught up with our chores, my my parents had a 20-acre orange grove, and later on we had the citrus nursery that my brother and I worked in. But I think just having to do jobs, like um, one job I mentioned in the book is suckering lemon trees and getting thorns just scratching up my hands and everything. Suckers are just little growth that, you don't want on the tree, but uh, I think the fact that I had to do these jobs in very hot conditions or freezing night, uh, lighting smudge pots in the middle of the night when it's 28 degrees out, you know, I think some of that background make me appreciate a lot of things and also made me humble. 
you know, I'd go to a Super Bowl week and, uh, uh, you know, the bar is open almost 24 hours a day. There's tons of food. You're being transported here and there and, and you're, there's parties galore. And to hear some of these writers complain, oh, this is like a cattle call and this is just the worst thing in the world. And I'm thinking, hey, I'm thinking to myself, You've never had to sucker lemon trees, have you? <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> well, you know, you for somebody who uh, came to Los Angeles and uh, was in the middle of so many big stories, uh, it had to be thrilling for you. It just seems like you were around, uh, you know, just so many big events, and, and we talked about the people involved. And one thing that sticks in my mind uh, when I met you, I, I was there in, in the Southern California, L.A. area for a couple of years doing those minor league games, and that was when the OJ trial uh, went on, which always just sticks in my mind. Uh, and of course, you interviewed OJ a number of times, right? Yeah, I, I, I the Fresno Bee did a, a a profile on me around 1990, and the quote in the story, and I found it. Uh, fortunately, I, I I saved a lot of stuff, and in the clipping, uh, I'm quoted as saying, uh, "You." can't meet a nicer guy than O.J. Simpson or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that quote kind of came back to haunt me. But, uh, yeah, obviously there was another side to O.J. that that, that none of us in the media saw. Uh, and, uh, you know, he told me about his, uh, when he, there was a New Year's Eve party. This is a year or two before the murder. Uh, and the police came and he poo-pooed, oh, Nicole and I had too much to drink, and, uh, you know, the police said they had to make a report, and so I bought it, and I wrote the whole thing, and he went on Roy Firestone's Up Close on ESPN, pretty much said the same thing, I, and so we we just, okay, it was no big thing, and then they show the pictures of Nicole later on, um, during the trial, or I forget exactly when they sh- the pictures showed up on TV, and he beat the hell out of her, you know. But we bought his story that, oh, they just had a little spat because they'd been drinking too much, and the police had to make a report. So uh, he handled the media pretty well. There was one time in 1990, he was on the phone with my friend Don Klosterman. We were going to have dinner, and I walked into Klosterman's room. He'd kind of left the door open because, you know, Don Klosterman, former Ram general manager, yeah. legendary guy, and he he didn't walk well. He was a year in the hospital after a skiing accident in 1957. So he told me just, hey, he'll leave the door uh, cracked open and just you know come on up to his room. And he was talking to OJ, and uh, so he says, hey, o- hey, Juice, guess who just walked into my room? Your buddy Larry Stewart. Well, I just criticized him on the AFC championship game. That <laughs> he did uh, locker room interviews, and he was totally unprepared. He got everything all wrong and, and stumbled on names. And, you know, I, it was two or three paragraphs. And so O.J. had always been so cordial and, you know, media-friendly. And uh, for about 30 seconds, I saw the other side of O.J. He was not kidding around. And... uh uh, he was almost threatening, and then he caught himself, and he went back to his usual, uh, you know, cordial, media-friendly self. But for 30 seconds there, and Klosterman thought 
you know, it was just they were we were going to laugh it off or something. And when I got off the phone, he said, "So that didn't go so well." I said, "No, it it didn't." So, but that was the key thing that I saw it back. I saw that that anger and almost that threatening. And it wasn't like the conversation like we talked about earlier with Vince Scully. This was this was tough talk. But then he he seemed to catch himself, and I said, "Well, I'm sure there's going to be times when." we can do something, you know, a more positive column or, you know, some, I kind of appeased him and he, he calmed down. But yeah, my experiences were OJ were, were, that's part of my book as a lot of other <laughs> experiences I had. Yeah. Uh, he probably should have stayed with acting, you know, as Nordberg in the naked gun or something like that. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's interesting because you did see the other side of, you, you already mentioned Scully and now you mentioned OJ, seeing the other side of people, people uh, watching television or listening on the radio don't see that side of these announcers. And, and you saw that. So I would think that was pretty interesting throughout your career. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Another was to fill the downtime during the pandemic. Um, <laughs> And I'd always, uh, I'm not a hoarder, but I did have this, we have this family room closet and full of scrapbooks and drawers full of clippings and and fan letters I'd gotten and printed out emails. And I saved all that stuff with the idea, well, you never know, maybe someday I'll write a book. So um, that that came in handy, but the whole my whole thinking behind the book was to tell these, to give some background on the people I dealt with. Like, I, I have a chapter on Keith Jackson. Well, Keith, a lot of broadcasters, uh, you know, would kiss up to me. They, and I knew they were kissing up to me. They wanted me to write something <laughs> nice about them. Right. If I went and played golf with them, if they started, uh, you know, working me out on the golf course for publicity, uh, and that happened a couple of times. I would say, well, that's the last time I'm playing golf with this guy. If we're just going to play and have a good time and get to know each other, then that's fine. And let me, uh, if it was a country club and I didn't have to pay to play, you know, and I would, I talked to my boss, Bill Dwyer, about that. It's good to get to know people, but uh, see if you can't, you know, if I couldn't pay for lunch with my company credit card or, or, you know, do something to kind of compensate it, uh, you know, at least attempt to try and pay or whatever. But I would uh, uh, get to know people on the golf course and or, or wherever, you know, or having a beer, and I think that would, you know, give me more insight. But I was talking about Keith Jackson. Uh, he was one announcer who never invited me to, to play golf or lunch or work me in any way. Uh, and one day after I was no longer at the Times, a couple of years later, my phone rings, and it's Keith Jackson. And he says, hey, you want to play golf at L.A. Country Club tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, yeah, sure. And so we started playing golf uh, you know, a number of times, and I became close with Keith. Uh, and he felt it was uh, it would not be appropriate for him to try and solicit publicity for me he had the opposite approach that so many broadcasters thought well let's get to know larry and let's go have lunch or let's uh you know have a beer together or something and hopefully 
uh, he'll write something nice. Well, Keith Jackson just felt that kissing up to me was inappropriate. So when I was, was no longer writing the column, then we became close. Yeah. I'd go up and visit him. He had dementia pretty bad the last few years of his life. But I'd still go up and listen to his stories. Uh, he could be crusty at times, but he was actually... Uh, under that crusty exterior, he was he was a very nice man with a tremendously nice wife. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That uh, I mean, he genuinely wanted to go play golf. It wasn't there wasn't any ulterior motive there, which is what you were getting from some of the other guys. Yeah, yeah, that's there was no agenda. It was just uh, and how he thought of me, I have no idea. And uh, I'd say we played it. He was a member of LA Country Club. And he was a good golfer. We'd play the south course. It's a little easier. And, uh, uh, you know, with golf, as long as you, it doesn't matter what you score, as long as you keep up and don't <laughs> don't stand in somebody's line and talk all the time, uh, you'll get invited back. <laughs> you don't have to uh, uh, worry about, you know, shooting in the 80s all the time <laughs> and keeping up. As long as you... Somebody taught me, well, I started golf late in life, and I'm not very good, but somebody helped me, gave me lessons in the etiquette of the game, and that's probably more important than actually uh, scoring low, you know. Oh, yeah, long as, I agree. <laughs> you know, to pick up if you if you can't get out of a sand trap or don't spend <laughs> too long looking for a lost ball and that kind of thing. Right. So to finish up, Larry, I'm curious what you think about the future of sports broadcasting. I mean, we've got streaming that's uh, you know already begun, and there's going to be a lot more. Amazon with the NFL, and uh, you see, as I mentioned, Aikman going to ESPN and a big contract there as far as big money. Tony Romo got big money with CBS, so you see the analysts making more uh, cash. Uh, what do you foresee as the future of sports broadcasting, whether it be positive or some of the negative stuff that maybe uh, is on your mind? Yeah, you know, we you just never know that the the future. I mean, uh, I'm still writing. In fact, uh, this I uh, I freelance for a chain of newspapers, the Southern California News Group, which is every LA paper except the LA Times, and. Of all things, I'm covering motorsports, which I never <laughs> covered earlier in my career. Uh, there's a NASCAR race in Fontana this weekend that I'm covering, and what I notice is just the amount of media. And oh, to get a credential now, you gotta. Uh, I had to take a picture of my passport and send a <laughs> photo in, and and you know because they've got all these different media outlets now. You know, a guy has a uh, not to put a podcast down, but a podcast, or they've they've got a website and they want to get a credential to cover these big events. Oh yeah, and so you've got, you know, so there's, the, I guess you'd say the internet media and the broadcasting media, and it's just it, it's different. And what the future holds. Uh, I really don't. I, I really have no idea. I just, <laughs> I just going along, trying to enjoy that I'm still active. And uh, right now, I've, I I finished that book, and and it's been kind of fun promoting it. And uh, I've got some book signings lined up, and uh, so things are good. But where what's going on with the future and the money? It's just you know, I just watched the 
the HBO special on Terry Bradshaw, who I, you, you got to love Terry Bradshaw as, as a journalist. The guy is so open. <laughs> I mean, he just wears his warts on his sleeve and talks about them all the time. And uh, uh, a, a real friendly guy. Well, he said when he quit playing football that he got and he was at CBS working with uh, uh, I forget who is. I think Vern Lundquist was his. Yeah, I think you're right. Because yeah. Vern Lundquist introduced him when he went into the Hall of Fame. But what stuck out with me, he said that David Hill came along with Fox and offered him a $100,000 a year salary, and uh, which he talked about like being the most money in the world, a $100,000 a year salary. <laughs> and now what is what are they talking about with Aikman? You I know, think $90 million, million total. A year yeah. or something, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's the money. Uh, the money's still there for the major networks, but to kind of sum up about... Uh, I think that television as we know it, most people now have a VCR and they fast forward through the commercials. So I think we're going to see more of, what do you call, Netflix and Amazon Prime. And yeah, the Hulu. streaming outlets, yep. The streaming that uh, you're, we're going to all pay for that and that's how they're going to make their money rather than with commercials. Yeah, uh, I I just think, you know, someday, uh, maybe in my lifetime, I, I, we might see uh, major events on Amazon Prime or something like that, and there'll be no, there'll be no commercials, but the customers will have to pay. You know, Except when I was a kid watching TV, the thought of having to pay <laughs> to watch television was just it, it was something you never even thought about. So I would say the streaming and and, the, and getting away from traditional t- television with a lot of commercials uh, may not be in the future, but that's just you know one thought. Yeah, no, everything's changing quickly. Well, Larry, I really enjoyed the book. I wish you the uh, best success with it. My up close view. Uh, all of those personal stories that you had uh, from your days with the L.A. Herald Examiner and the. Los Angeles Times. Uh, it was always a joy to read you, and now to read the book was awesome. It's in five different versions. Uh, uh, I'm battling with with Amazon. To, to <laughs> I just had to talk to somebody. So it's there's the hardcover version, one with black and white photos, the other with color, and then there's paperback, one version with black and white pictures, and then another with color. And I'm recommending the paperback with color pictures. The price is too high for the hardcover book with color pictures. Amazon set the price as $46.99, and that's an embarrassment to me. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not worth that much money. But I think $25 for the paperback with color pictures is the way to go. But a lot of people are buying the ebook. Uh, there's no photos in the ebook because the young man helping me, uh, we had trouble lining up the pictures and the captions and it was just a mess and so the thought was well let's not do an ebook and then i said well let me try just i take out all the pictures uh and uh and that worked so i'm selling more ebooks than because it's nine nine dollars and 99 cents uh 
So I, the ebook is doing pretty well, but I recommend the uh, the paperback with uh, color photos for twenty five ninety nine on Amazon. Is that a good enough sale? I think pitch? that no, I think that's a good pitch, and uh, he did a great job with the book. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and hope to see you soon. I hope so. Yeah, we'll keep in touch. That's former Los Angeles Times columnist Larry Stewart. Join us again next week for another edition of the Sports Virus Podcast. For now, I'm Joe Castellano. Thanks for listening on the Believe Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.